something we believe in, and what does the eventual resurrection of our body tell us about God and how he sees us? Also, Andrew, I'm sorry, I've forgotten the pointer, so maybe I'll just let you know when I want the slide changed. <laughs> yeah, sorry, man. Um, if you could change it now, that would, be, that would be great. The place that I actually wanted to start is in Luke chapter 20. Uh, we see a scene here where a group called the Sadducees questioned Jesus regarding the resurrection. Now, the Sadducees were this group of important upper-class Jewish leaders who did not believe in the resurrection. Now, they asked Jesus, what would happen to a woman who married seven brothers in succession as each of the first six passed away before her? Their question is, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? The Sadducees have created what is really a ridiculous scenario to try to make a point. So Jesus, after establishing that resurrected life will not simply be a continuation of life as we know it, he brings up a quote from Moses at the burning bush. I think it's worth noting here, first of all, that Jesus grounds his teaching in the writings of Moses. These were some of the writings that were actually accepted by the Sadducees. So we see Jesus knows his audience, and he wants to connect with them. So Jesus notes that Moses calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, these were three people who had passed away, yet Moses is saying that the Lord is still their God. So how can this be explained? So in verse 38, if you could hit the next slide, Andrew, in verse 38, Jesus clarifies the remark by saying, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him, all are alive. In the account in Mark, Jesus also adds an additional remark for the Sadducees that they are badly mistaken, which also seems fairly compelling evidence to believe in the resurrection of the body as Jesus is correcting them. But to return to the quotation, to Jesus' quotation of Moses, this demonstrates to us that in some way these people are with God and have some type of afterlife with God. And the implication is that they will be raised again. God has a plan for that. Oh, there we go. Speaking of Jesus, Jesus' life provides us, first of all, with multiple examples of real-life resurrections. We read about Jesus raising a young girl, Jairus' daughter, and also Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. And of course, as we'll talk about more later, Jesus himself raises from death after three days. In John's gospel, the raising of Lazarus is actually the last miracle that Jesus performs before his death, and it clearly carried a lot of significance. It seems to be both the event that led the crowds to greet him on Palm Sunday and the event that so gravely concerned the Jewish leaders. In those times, for many Jews, death was likely something to fear. It represented an ending. It was something that people had no, no power over and something that up to that point in time, it was uncertain how much power God had over. God didn't have so much of a track record of, re of resurrection at that point in time. So for this group of people for whom previously death had invoked feelings of despair or likely at best uncertainty, Jesus was now someone to follow, someone who could be their savior. Here was someone who could bring someone back from death, someone who could redeem life. The raising of Lazarus in an age with no social media or instant news reporting upset, upset the landscape in Israel enough to lead the Jewish leaders to plot his arrest and death. It was likely they were thinking something along the lines of, 
better for one person to die than for the nation of Jews to rebel and all die. I think that the excited reaction of the people that we see exemplified by their welcoming of Jesus to Jerusalem and the triumphal entry, coupled with the reaction of the Jewish authorities, demonstrates how powerful of an event the resurrection of Lazarus was. The resurrection of Jairus' daughter and of Lazarus revealed a new part of Jesus' character and identity, and they foreshadow how God can bring us back to life with him after we die on earth. If we could go to the next slide. But what does this life after death look like? The Anglican bishop and theologian N.T. Wright says that our culture is really interested in life after death, but the New Testament is much more interested in the life after the life after death. There seems to be the idea throughout the New Testament that after earthly death, souls will go to be with God in some type of conscious but incomplete existence, and that they will later return to bodily form at the resurrection of bodies when Jesus returns. Sometimes we may overlook the significance of our physical body in this resurrection process, and in doing so, confuse resurrection with the common Greek view of immortality. For the Greeks, the soul existed before we are born and will continue on after we die. And the body is seen almost as this prison of the soul. And it isn't until the soul is freed from the body that redemption can take place. Now, in the biblical doctrine, the message seems to be that the soul is created through relationship with God and with one another. The soul does not have a self-existence apart from God. Most importantly, while the Greeks see the soul having a redemption from the body, the New Testament sees redemption including the body. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? The temple is a place that God lived, and through this verse talking about our body being the temple that the Holy Spirit lives in, the connection between physical and spiritual is clear. While we are alive on earth, the Holy Spirit has a good place to live, and our body is something that we should value and care for because it is a place that God can live in. So certainly the resurrection of the body demonstrates to us God's power over death and how our soul and body can be aligned. But to go even further than the clear significance and joy of a second life with God, what is significant about the resurrection of the body and the Apostles' Creed? We may hear people talk about how humans are totally depraved, that human nature is fully corrupt and sinful. Total depravity tells us that everything we do, even our good deeds, comes from a selfish ambition. In essence, there is nothing good about us, and our completely sinful nature is passed down from generation to generation. So if we could hit the next slide. Um, so actually, the, the only early church leader who believed anything close to total depravity was Augustine of Hippo. You can see up on the screen. Augustine's original sin theology, that we exist in a state of sin as a consequence of the sins of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, originated as a response to something called Pelagianism. Now, Pelagianism was really the other end of the spectrum. Pelagianism said that humans, by themselves, without assistance from God, had the capability to live a moral and good life. Now, this could be a prime example of the pendulum swinging too far the other way. Yes, Pelagianism was an extreme that needed to be 
that needed to be critiqued. But going all the way to the other extreme as a response to Pelagianism produced another distortion of truth. According to Augustine, God's original view of us when we were born is that we are sinful and corrupt beings, to the point that Augustine believed that unbaptized babies who died would go to hell. It is both sad and kind of ironic that the original sin theology became accepted in the Western church because it is the same doctrine taught by the Gnostics who early church leaders put much effort into countering. Go to the next slide. The Gnostics, who heavily influenced Augustine, believed that our flesh is inherently evil, and similar to the Greeks, they saw this dichotomy between spirit and flesh, through which they viewed the spirit as being trapped inside a prison of evil flesh until freed by death. While Augustine said that we had a very diminished free will, the Gnostics believed that we were essentially incapable of choosing God because of our nature. Since they believed these things, they actually denied that Jesus Christ was truly human because it would mean that Christ possessed this evil nature. Total depravity tells us that everything we do is displeasing to God and that everything we do, even our good deeds, comes from a selfish ambition. Does this seem like the way God views us? Does this seem like the people that a loving God created? The idea that we are incapable of choosing God and do not have the free will to choose not to sin and that we have the free will to love God does not reflect God's relational nature and the relational aspect that God created us with. In the first and second century, actually, total depravity was condemned as a heresy, especially because it seems as though biblical writers consistently emphasize not just Jesus' divinity, but also his humanity. So a good example of this is actually in 1 John uh, chapter 4, verse 3 to 4, when the Apostle John writes that Jesus came in the flesh. Fundamentally, total depravity creates multiple theological problems for us to deal with, as we kind of discussed before. So if we believe in total depravity, we either have to believe that Jesus was not fully human, as the Gnostics did, So the idea that he did not have the same nature as us, that he was not tempted in the same way as us, or we would have to believe that Jesus was sinful on earth. If Jesus came as fully human, then following the logic of total depravity, he would have had to sin because human nature is inherently evil. But if Jesus was not fully human, then it would follow that he did not bridge the divide between us and God in the way that God said that he did. Hebrews 2.18 tells us that because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And a verse earlier in Hebrews 2.17, it tells us that Jesus was made like us in every way. And we kind of see this while on earth. We read that Jesus went through real serious temptation. And the prime example of this is, of course, in Luke chapter 4, when the devil tempts Jesus during his 40 days in the desert, and we see Jesus being hungry and tired and all these things that us humans feel. So I think what these verses and stories tell us is that Jesus came to earth with our human nature to connect with our struggle and be in solidarity with us. But they also prove and tell us that Jesus showed that we as humans can be good. Jesus resisted temptation and was sinless. In the resurrection story of Jesus, the resurrection of the flesh is continually emphasized. From the empty tomb to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary embracing Jesus' feet, 
to Jesus' reiteration that he is not just a spiritual being, but is flesh and blood, to Jesus requesting the disciples for food, to Jesus inviting Thomas and the disciples to touch his wounds. The physical body is being highlighted and is part of God's redemptive plan. Jesus' example shows us that human flesh can be good and that it does not have to be relegated or maligned. The truth of the resurrection of the body is beautiful, not just because it presents a second life, but because it demonstrates how God's redemptive plan for the world includes everything, including the physical. The lies of total depravity have caused many of us in the church to look down on the physical, leaving us with a negative view of creation, physical needs, and the goodness in the created order. But God does not create garbage. If we go to the next slide. When God created the physical world, he gave it his benediction, and he called it very good. Genesis 1.27 tells us that he created us in his image. He did not create us just so that we would fall into a trap of being evil or inadequate. He created us for relationship with one another and with him. I think when we're able to recognize the goodness that God created us with, it allows us to see God as that loving creator who wants a relationship with us. The physical body is an instrument that God gave us, which we can express love to one another and to God. So while these views focus on total depravity may come from a place of seeking to highlight God's overwhelming grace, they undercut the goodness of God's creation and diminish the beauty of the relationship God wants with us. The resurrection of the body points to the goodness of our physical bodies that there's something to be celebrated and something worth bringing back to life to redeem. So what will that redemption and resurrection of bodies look like? A lot of times we associate it with the rapture, and we associate the rapture with a time of terror and destruction that God eventually rescues us from. 1 Thessalonians 4 seems to speak of a much more encouraging alternative. Up on the screen? Perfect. So I'm just going to read it. Starting at verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The picture of being resurrected and meeting Jesus is both a great image and a comforting one. Now, one school of thought would identify this moment and ascent to heaven as the culmination of Jesus saving us as we go to heaven to be with God forever. This is the moment that we are rescued from the world and go to live with God. I just wanted to give a bit of a disclaimer before I get into this next part, um, because I know that talking about this can be a controversial issue, and I, but I did want to present this next school of thoughts view just as something for everyone to consider. I don't want to be divisive in any way, but I do think there's something great about sharing different viewpoints and opinions 
Um, and one thing that I really enjoy about our church here is that I feel like we are all, we are all open-minded and we have a willingness to engage with different ideas. So the perspective that I am going to present was really helpful for me in understanding this passage with who I believe God to be. So I would welcome you to consider this interpretation, but also to remember that even if we disagree on, on this interpretation, that is all right. We still have unity in Christ. So, the school of thought that I feel very compelled by would say that when reading this passage at face value, there still seems to be some element of separation from the earth that God created and called good. There's a suggestion that we need to be away from this world to be fully redeemed. So it is a beautiful scene of celebration for believers, but the reality is that everyone else is left behind. However, according to this perspective, a closer look at the context and some of the nuances the Greek words used in this text may bring new meaning to this passage. So the key phrase to look at in this passage is the Greek words, ace upon tesson. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. I asked Bill before speaking, so I don't know how I did. But ace upon tesson in verse 17 is translated simply as meat. However, in Greek, the word is not simply limited, limited to encountering someone, but it carries the added meaning of the action of going out to meet someone on arrival. So essentially, it's a way of especially honoring a visitor. We go to the next slide. Now, when the individual that was visiting was a particularly important person, the, visit, the visitation was called a parousian, which is the word we see used in verse 15 for coming as in an important person was coming. Now, in those times, the custom for a Parosian visit was for the inhabitants of the city to go out of the city to meet the visitor and then accompany them on the last stage of their journey back to the city. So this escort of the visitor by the citizens was known as the apontessin that we just talked about. It's interesting to note we see this word apontessin. We see it also used um, if we go to the next slide, it's either apontessin or eupontessin, so it's the same root word. Um, but we also see it used in John chapter 12, verse 13, on Palm Sunday, when people go out to meet Jesus for the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We see it in Matthew 25, in the parable of ten bridesmaids, when some of the bridesmaids go out to meet the bridegroom and accompany him back to the wedding feast. And finally, we see it in Acts chapter 28, verse 15, when a delegation of Christians from Rome go out to meet Paul as he approaches the city. So from the context of the times and the Greek language being used, this perspective suggests that the passage is saying that the risen bodies and the living believers will meet the descending Jesus Christ in the clouds to escort Jesus and share in his glory the rest of the way back down to earth. What's really striking is that no one is left behind as some go to be with Christ, God does not abandon the world at the resurrection, but he brings his kingdom to be fully present on earth. The narrative changes from one of earthly escape to one of earthly redemption. Similar to the way that God is resurrecting our bodies, he wants the whole world to be redeemed and reconciled to him. I wanted to close this section with another quote from N.T. Wright, who in his book, Simply Christian, says this. If we go to the next slide. Perfect. He says, the New Testament picks up from the Old the theme that God intends, in the end, to put the whole creation to rights. Earth and heaven were made to overlap with one another. 
not fitfully, mysteriously, and partially, as they do at the moment, but completely, gloriously, and utterly. The great drama will end not with saved souls being snatched up into heaven, away from the wicked earth and mortal bodies, which have dragged them down into sin, but with the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth, so that the dwelling of God is with humans. If we go to the next slide. The resurrection of the body not only brings us encouraging news about an eternal life with God and does not only highlight the magnificent and good power that God has over everything, including death, but it also tells us so much about God and who he created us to be. The sentiment of Romans chapter 8, verses 38 to 39, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord seems to ring out clearly. The resurrection's embrace of the physical runs against total depravity and the idea that we are not created uniquely, specially, and lovingly by a caring God who more than anything wants us to choose him. Not, to cho- not out of force, but out of our own free will. Rather than feeling guilty about how good actions make us feel good, we are free to consider that the good feeling comes from God and how we are connecting with him in that moment. That in that moment we are close to God and that the good feeling is part of what it feels like to be close to God. God takes joy in our good actions and love for our neighbors and desire for relationship with him. When we view our flesh at such a disconnect with the spiritual, it takes away from how God created us and how we can experience God on earth. Total depravity's focus on afterlife and view of heaven as the only good place can make us blind to God's presence today, right now in our lives, in the lives of people around us, and the ways in which God's kingdom is already present on earth. Jesus' life surely demonstrates to us that the physical can be good. When we accept that God created us and the world is good, it can transform how we see God and our, and our relationship with him. God does not see us as a liability, but as a cherished life that he wants a deep relationship with. I will just close in prayer.